Welcome to the Improv in Practice podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Wilson, bringing you interviews, inspiration, and information on improvised theater with Synergy Theater. You can find Synergy Theater's classes, workshops, performances, and more at synergytheater.com. That's S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y theater.com. Okay, lights down, curtain up. Hello, improvisers. This is episode 10, and it is February 20th, 2022, as I record this. It's been a while since our last episode, but we're back. I did not intend for this episode to take this long. So much of our lives and our improvising depend on what happens when what happens is not what we intended. Do we accept it or do we block it? If, for example, we're in an interview with guests that we really admire and suddenly everyone gets disconnected, what happens next? Well, we're about to find out. Cat Coppett is a performer, improv teacher, and consultant to companies on improv principles in the workplace. Kat is also the author of Training to Imagine, and if you have a job, you should read her book. Kat connects to the interview from New York. Maggie. Maggie connects by phone from Southeast England in Surrey. Maggie is an improv performer, and like Kat, she is much more than that. Maggie is wonderful. So, get your underused ears ready. You are in for a treat. Here we go. Okay. So, thank you both so much for being here and for taking the time. This is amazing. I've really, really, really looked forward to this time. And Kat, I would love to start with you. And Maggie, as as Kat and I talk, if there's something that triggers a question for you, please do ask it. Okay. Will so, do. So, Kat, the first question I've been dying to ask you for a while is, what was the moment that you realized that the principles that you were learning in improv and in practicing improvised theater, what was that moment that you realized, oh, this could carry over into so many other environments? Yeah, it's a great question. I was very slow to the table on this. I was teaching improv as a stage performance activity to students at Freestyle Repertory Theater, Theater Sports New York, in New York City, as part of a company with Ken Adams and run by Laura Livingston. And my day job was teaching English to Russian uh, immigrants immigrants from Jewish, Russian refugees. And my students started saying to me things like, boy, I wish my boss knew this yes and thing because they're always shooting down my ideas or, wow, I wish, I wish my team at work, you know, had the kind of ensemble feeling and esprit de corps that our improv class has. And because I had this job teaching English as a second language and training trainers, as I sort of moved up in the organization, I was sort of tagged within Freestyle Rep to start our corporate training programs when people said, I want to bring you into work so that my boss or my team can learn these improv principles. I was the one who was sort of dragged in to do that because I was the closest to having a training background as anyone in the organization. And I was like, 
okay, we can do this. We're starving actors. Organizations have money. Okay. <laughs> but I was like, I don't know. I don't know anything about business. What does improv have to do with anything? But then eventually I, I said, I'm going to go back to school. And I went at, to get a master's in organizational psychology, mostly because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't selling snake oil. And it took me about, oh, I don't know, three weeks or something in that program for me to go like, oh, okay. There are all of these things that those of us in the theater, not just improv, but really in the world of the theater, take for granted that most lay people, civilians are starving for it. <laughs> Know, that are just that are just star they're starving to be seen to be heard to be able to express what is truly going on inside their heads out loud to co-create something with other people and have that celebrated and then you know i learned a lot of fancy language about all of the things that we now now that everybody recognizes in organizational environments or life, you know, are the skills and practices that are valuable from improv in real life, because there's really no difference. I'll tell you a story about that, but I'll stop for a minute because I could go on forever about this. But okay, I want to hear the story. Uh, I do want to add, though, that <laughs> I, I am reading your book, Training to Imagine, and it is so spot on as far as what the corporate environment has been and still is and how it feels to be a worker bee. <laughs> and I, I'm just, I'm really enjoying how insightful it is. And it's so, so helpful. And just really in tune with the needs of, mm. like I said, worker bees, but also mm. management, because management mm -hmm. are people too. And, oh, yeah. and so I want to hear that story. But I would like to also hear about the journey as, as far as the decision that you made to, what if I made this a book and, and yeah. just the, that journey, I would love to hear more about that. Well, as I say, I was sort of slow that I grew up in a very intellectual sort of cerebral New York city, Jewish hyper analytical family, right? So the idea of using, I, which is probably why I became an actor, right? Because I, I was starving for this having access to emotion and play. And, but I was very skeptical about, oh, we're going to use improv in organizations. And I think the, the benefit that that gave me was I could put myself in the shoes of my clients. And it was very important to me that there was actual performance outcomes and learning objectives. If I was going to go in and do improv, I didn't just want to say, here, we're going to do improv. And then you figure out how it's going to apply or you know, just do an activity and then say, so how does this apply to your work? I wanted to really have some connections and maybe almost to a fault because I remember having a conversation very soon out of graduate school with clients where I'd be sort of spraying jargon at them or all of these proof points. And I remember having one client who sort of listened very politely and, and then said something like, okay, that's great. But what about this idea that we're just all improvising all the time, that life is improv. We don't have script. And I was like, right, uh, that, <laughs> that too. And so every step along the way, I felt, I feel still like I'm learning from my clients, just what you're saying, right? That more and more as time goes on, 
we are all realizing that what happens on an improvisational theater stage is really not different from what's happening in life. And the principles and techniques and exercises that we have as improvisers are applicable to life because it's what we're doing in life. And it's just that improvisers for the stage have had this really deliberate focus on coming up with ways to get better at it and to exercise those muscles with a lot of focus, right? So we've said, okay, how can we be more present in the moment? How can we exercise that muscle? How can we collaborate more intentionally and co-create? We've exercised that muscle. How can we adapt flexibly in the moment when we don't know what's coming next? Well, if we didn't know before, the last year and a half has pretty much shown us that we don't know what's coming next. That was always true, by the way, but now we've been confronted with it, right? Uh, how can we connect quickly in a new environment? And when it's not what we expected, how do we shift and accept whatever offers are coming to us? It's, it's really just the same thing. So people are recognizing that they need to do that, at least as much for leaders and managers. Just to tag that, one of my major clients right now called me up, global client, a consulting firm in April of 2020 because they'd seen an article written about the power of yes and in which I was featured and they were training their global consultants to be able to have new and different conversations when they couldn't rely on knowing the answer. So they're leading me. Maggie, do you have a question? I was making agreeing noises. It was just, I was nodding in mm -mm, when I heard um, resilience. How can we be more resilient and how can we shift quickly? I, I want to hear more instead of interrupting with questions. Is that okay? <laughs> of course. Right now in the U.S., we, we are transitioning back to more in-person interactions, including work and going back to, the, to an office environment. And Kat, I would be very interested to know how you think that this is going to go for everyone. We, over the last year, we shifted to another type of communication, which is screen to screen. Mm -hmm. And, but now we're going to be back. And I, what I'm getting from my own coworkers is that there's a little bit of social anxiety happening now. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, ugh. another project we're working on is redesigning an in-person new hire orientation, which used to be completely in-person, then it's gone to completely virtual. And we're being asked to redesign the fully in-person new hire orientation. Although if we, when we push a little bit, they say, yeah, except that some people probably won't be able to come back in person, at least not right away. And we are going to all come back in person to work, but probably not. It'll probably be hybrid for a while. So there's a part of me when you ask that question that thinks, um, yeah, maybe we'll all be back in person, but probably not so much. There's some real gifts of organizations having their eyes opened to the value of being able to be work from home and be hybrid. It is an incredible boon to the environment if we could do more things not in person, and we're obviously able to do it. There's an incredible boon in terms of access and I'm guessing we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along in this conversation, but so many people were excluded 
in so many ways that do not have to be excluded. And if we don't learn that lesson, shame on us. But also there's all sorts of ways that this really is just as good, maybe better for all sorts of things. So that's the first thing that comes up for me when we think about going back. Maybe we shouldn't be so quick to want to go back to the way everything was because the way everything was wasn't always great. This, the second thing, which might be a more direct answer to your question is we are so adaptable. I mean, the crazy way that we, I, I remember, I have a friend who works for a big consulting firm and she told me that for years they've been talking about how to get their call centers in India set up so that people could work from home. They have these giant, giant call centers, like backend support. And they were like, well, we can't do it. They just don't have the infrastructure in India to do that, right? So they build these giant sort of like beehive structures. Within a week of COVID, they had 100,000 people with setups in their house working from home because they had to do it. It took them one week to get 100,000 people set up when push came to jump. Well, so you can do it if you're sufficiently motivated. And now they have 100,000 people with infrastructure to work from home. So that's something, whether those people go back to those environments, I don't know. But we're, so we're very adaptable. I think people will have less trouble than they think going back. If we want to make it easier for people, we should deliberately do some things. There's great improv exercises that people could look up and do, mostly about being in space together. Like, let's do some eye contact exercises, because that's one of the few things you can't really do in this space, is actually look each other in the eye. That sounds wonderful. Hey, Maggie, I would love to hear about your, your journey to improv. It's been a polite phrase, rocky road, normal phrase, real mess. I had no intention to end up kind of doing this as my main hobby. I have a, a very different background. I grew up in Scotland, just outside the city of Glasgow in the west coast of Scotland. We were poor, 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 really poor, because most people in Scotland are then you get a couple of villages where there's money. Um, literally villages, you don't have so many detached houses. You're all in flats and tenement buildings. And you're, oh, I can hear myself sounding corny, but it, it really was the corny story of, we didn't have much, so we made up our own fun, and you did. Uh, most of the time was, oh, come on, right, get your breakfast down, go out the house, make stuff up. Um, and those worlds were real. And we invested a lot of time and imagination in those worlds because it was better than what was around you. And it sounds horrible. It wasn't horrible. My parents were nice. But we just, we didn't have anything. So the imagination thing was on 100% from the earliest days I can remember. Toys I played with, dolls, trains, whatever, any gender, stuck it in. They were real. These things were real. And when you cried, you lost it. And then you forgot it when you were called into fish fingers at six o'clock, this kind of thing. So the improvisation, that has always been there and it's never left me. The creating fantasy worlds. Hmm. Are they fantasy worlds? Or are they versions of the world that you're in? but you run the version you'd like the world you're in to be and you call it a fantasy world. That's never stopped. Um, I think it may be stopped for a while. I had a, a huge accident 
in my early to mid 20s and I lost most of my sight and I incurred a year later lots of quite serious disability chronic conditions and when the willingness to stop having fun in those worlds went everything else went with it but it took a few years and I picked myself back up again and doubled down on the improv muscle didn't really know what improv theatre meant I don't even think I understood the word improvising but I'd always done artistic type things at school, alternating between that and trying to be a sports jock. And as life went on and disability increased, I think somebody mentioned to me on an acting course or a, I was in a play or something, well, we did some exercises and I thought, oh, that's so cool. And somebody says, yeah, it's improv. And I went along with a friend 11 years ago to a formal improv class taught by Luke Sorber at the comedy school in Camden. And I never looked back. And that's taken over from all the other forms of performance. The, uh, I trained as a classical singer. It's taken over from that. It's taken over from script theatre because learning lines is hard and I'm in my 50s. And um, I'd say I escaped more and more into improvised worlds because they're what you want to be. And anything goes. And if you're with the right group of people, then I believe... I realise I'm in a kind of unique position because I talk from a place of kind of being a disabled person. When you're with the right people and it flows well, I believe what you create on stage together is better and will always be better than what's in the real world because the pictures are in your head and the reality is there. It's a, it's a glimpse of something like a, like a fantastic orchestral concert or a rock concert. It's that special thing you create with this temporary energy and to me that's the place I would rather be than the oh I'll get my shopping oh I'll do an online order oh hello you know um so in my very patchy way I'm hoping that kind of <laughs> gives an idea of my how I stumbled into improv I love that story and so tell me about your experience in Ken's class, how you found the class and, and what your experience was like. Oh, God, right. I will answer that bit of it. But first, Ken is amazing. Okay, he's a force of nature. And that's why I'm coming back and coming back. Um, something I love in improv is, and theatre, and performance really, it's strong direction. You need a leader. You need someone that's not ashamed to say, yeah, I'm a teacher. I'm teaching. For me, if you have strong leadership and strong direction, we're actors, we know what to do. But the kind of hell in improv for me is you pay your £200, $240, you get there, you've all trained for ages, and then a tutor comes along and says, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. We're all like, no, but please do that. That's why we've given up all this time and paid you all this money. Really do, please. And Ken is not ashamed of, right, come on, up on your feet. He just, he goes for it. And he has this amazing forward-moving energy that somebody said in the, in the, the Shakespeare Masterclass, but they said it in front of him. And he was oh, well, thank you very much. He has this amazing ability to unite a group of disparate people that only met 20 minutes ago and turn them into a team that works quickly. I've never met anyone else. I've, I've trained 18 improv schools around the world it's a lot but 150 nobody can do that as ken does 
and I heard of Ken through Vinnie Francoise at Improv College in Montreal. And I heard of Vinnie through my teacher in the UK, Stephen Davidson. And Ken was guesting on one of Vinnie's four-week courses, Do Scenes, Get Notes, where you have to have a certain level, a certain amount of years of doing improv. Four guest shooters come in from around the world and they tell you what they like and what they don't like. And it was brilliant. And I heard Ken there and loved what he did, loved his comments. He gave me criticism that worked and sometimes tutors don't, they, they never say this, but I sometimes feel maybe because of the disability and the sight loss, people pity me so they don't want to upset me. And I'm like, oh, come on, I want to get better. I'm not just here because I, 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 I want company online for two hours. I'm here to learn and I'm here to improve. And Ken doesn't hold back on that. And after he'd um, come into teachers for a while, we, we got an email. Hey, I also run the theatre. And I thought, bingo, I'm having some of that. And the Shakespeare course was amazing. I got my ass whipped by Americans who were much better and much more knowledgeable on Shakespeare than I've ever been. And we all raced ahead at this huge speed. And most of us have signed up to doing Shakespeare 2 or the next thing and the next thing. And so I'm, I, to summarise, I heard about him at, at Montreal through Vinnie Francois. And I come back for more because I love his energy. He's a bloody good teacher and he's a fine director. So what do you hope to do with the knowledge and experience that you're getting now? What are your creative hopes for the future? I don't have any. I don't, I don't do that anymore. I don't set goals and I don't end game. I don't realize setting goals is an end game, but I don't plan ahead anymore. I used to, and I think I used to set my goals at something unrealistic or unattainable or like a child. I had no realistic way of setting goals for myself. So my only intention is to keep learning, to meet more amazing people, uh, to keep improving, but to never stop training. Like, you know, like a ballet class. The dancers that dance in the West End, they do bar class every morning. They never stop doing that. I'm not sure there's a, an amount of knowledge you get to, and then you can sort of sit back and think, oh, yeah, it's, I've reached the 10,000 hours or the 10, 11 years mark. And rather I'm thinking, oh, my God, there's all this other stuff now that I, I, I just want to dive in it. It's less of a swimming pool in proper, it's more of an ocean. You will never, ever stop learning. Uh, and for me, I don't even think of it in terms of one day I can do this, or if I do this, that means I'm good. It, it, it's more about the learning and the, the, the journey. As I'm saying these things, I'm hearing how corny they are, but they're corny for a reason, because I guess they're true for a lot of people. What I enjoy is the process, the meeting, complete strangers and assume that's from all around the world and being able to create something that's tight and that flows as if you've spent your life with them and it's only improv where that can happen and and I love it you're speaking like what's in my heart it's resonating (laughs) definitely I have had very similar and the same feelings in improv classes with Ken definitely and Kat, I have a question for you. Yes. And that is, what creative hopes do you have for the Mopco Theatre and then also your consultancy firm? Well, 
first of all, I, I love Maggie, what you're saying about not end gaming it because it's such a great improv principle in practice, isn't it? Around mm. like not planning, but just sort of what's the next, the next one thing, right? And just sort of being in the moment. Right. So I, I love that. And it's interesting running companies or running businesses and, and the sort of polarity of surfing that polarity of like, well, I, I have to do some forecasting or some planning. It's sort of my job, like parenting, right? You have to think ahead to some extent or you're being irresponsible. And at the same time, this idea of we really are never promised tomorrow. Nothing showed us that more than COVID. And how do you sort of stay present and not plan ahead in a way that keeps you from being improvisational and flexible, but sets out some guardrails or something, right? Or sets a North Star in a way. So Mopco, Mopco Improv Theater is the improvisational theater wing of our business. We are, we're based in upstate New York. About, just about five years ago, we bought an old firehouse by way of illicit strip club that was featured on the Jerry Springer show <laughs> and that shut down in the 90s. It was sitting dormant. And uh, my husband, Michael Burns, our artistic director, uh, negotiated with the guy and some sort of real life improvisational scene work. He started conversations with him over a period of months and got him to sell it when he was sitting on it because he was angry at the city for shutting him down. And we bought it and renovated it and turned it into this little theater downstairs. And then we had our corporate offices and some rehearsal space upstairs or classroom space upstairs. And we're to reopen at the end of July. In person, we've been doing online stuff, although not nearly as much as Synergy's been doing. So that's Mopco. And I guess what I hope for Mopco is that we will be able to be back in person for the sustainable future. And those of us who stuck with it during the pandemic and did the online performing together got really tight. There was something about navigating this new space and creating new formats and meeting every week in this space that was very intimate and I think really upped our improv game in a lot of ways because uh, we were connected to each other in a very um, pure way, right? There wasn't any distraction, even of an audience, really. So I, I'm looking forward to getting back in person space and seeing how we come together and what we are able to create. For, for the consultancy, sort of linking back to your original question, Sarah, I'm looking forward to seeing how we can continue to grow and help our clients without going back to the insanity that was pre-COVID in terms of being on the road all the time. And I'd like to be able to continue to offer virtual support and programs, both for us and our lives and for our clients and their lives, create healthy, manageable, inclusive ways of being. Maggie, what do you think? I'm so impressed and have so much envy that the, the roots of this beautiful place used to be a burlesque bar. I'm, <laughs> I wish I had, I, I want an anecdote like that because that's what gets attention and then that, that's quite fantastic. Um, I, I wanted to ask Kat, have you, um, kind of hidden its origins or are you playing on its origins with a, a cheeky time here and there? <laughs> oh, well, it's funny. The Historical Preservation Society gave us a 
an award for retaining the bones of the building, which is all about the firehouse, right? Which is pre, you know, 70 years pre-strip club. Uh, right. <laughs> I tell everybody that I can about the strip club. We, we know everything about, like, fire. Hi, it's just me. Remember what I said at the beginning about intentions? Well, I did not intend for us all to get disconnected, just as Kat was about to give us some incredible details on the sordid past of her now respectable improv theater. I am so grateful to Kat and Maggie, who stuck with me as we all reconnected. Me from California, Kat from New York, and Maggie by phone from England. True to our improv training, we all just rolled with it. Oh my gosh, you guys. Thank you so much for bearing with me there. I'm definitely going to include that interruption because <laughs> I, that's just so great. That's just life, but you got to roll with it. And I was hanging on every word. You were talking about the structure and the bones of the firehouse and, and how the city yeah. was. Well, it was, so it was a hundred year old firehouse. We got this award from the Stark Preservation Society for keeping the tin ceilings and the sort of structures of the firehouse. But of course, what we didn't keep was, were the structures of the strip club, like the hot pink hot tub that was upstairs and the recessed colored lightings. But we did learn the difference between a fire pole and a stripper pole, which I gather are very, very different things. So to answer your question, Maggie, yes, I tell everyone all about the strip club part of the history, much more than the firehouse. That's much more interesting to me. But I gather that we're, we weren't supposed to mention it a lot when we were like publicizing the opening of the club itself, like in the press, because I gather there's a lot of bad blood in the city. Oh, one more oh. thing. The other thing that was there was this like fake bookshelf with a little room behind it where I gathered that oh, they would hide like the local politicians when the raids happened. <laughs> like a 20th century priest hole. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm picturing that in my head. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Maggie and Kat, do you have any more questions for each other? Here's, a, here's another tangent. Sure. I just love that your name is Maggie and my name is Kat because it reminds me of Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, the Tennessee Williams play. Oh, um, another, well, not so much a tangent, staring at me is a, a, a beautiful male tabby cat that clearly never gets fed, never gets loved. Yeah. <laughs> and because of lockdown, I, I, I mean, I, I was shielding at home for a long, long time on my own. And without my cat, I would have had well, no other living presence in the house. Oh. Uh, but I, I yeah, it, 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 I mean, it wasn't easy, but it happened, Ray, I got through it. Uh, but but because of the encroachment on his space, because um, a lady from Bulgaria who hardly speaks any English said to me, a cat owns everything he sees. And suddenly <laughs> my world of owning cats, it fell into place. So the walking over your dinner plate while you're eating, it, it's apparently it's normal. It's nothing to be... <laughs> shocked about and spend $60 on the vet just phoning them hey I can't cope with a cat they're like grow up um uh, the encroachment on the space wasn't so much an issue for me as it was for the cat and he started playing up uh, and the vet eventually said well it's because you've been in his territory all yeah. day instead of going away to the place where you do stuff every yeah. day. <laughs> um 
so there's another cat connection. Um, beautiful, but like a lot of good-looking men, very hard work sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that makes me think of, I, I have, well, I've had until recently, we lost one of our one of our dogs, but for most of the pandemic, we had four pets, three dogs and a cat who had most of the time before that been home alone all day, every day and into the evening, two of them sort of neurotic rescue dogs. And they were transformed. Their whole lives were transformed during the pandemic. And they were like, we don't know what is going on, but it is the best thing that has ever happened to us. They were super happy the entire time. They would just lie at my feet for hours and hours. I was going to say the whole cameras in the house thing. There's a theory. <laughs> Somebody, I think, sent me a meme of it to say, all pet, why did all pets turn into the Kardashians during lockdown? <laughs> like they just, they get used to the glamour and there's, they wait until you're in a meeting or doing a show and then they just walk straight past the screen. Cats love going past the screen and turning their rear quarters to the world and they do it on purpose. I don't know how they know the meetings on, but it's, it's a universal thing. Of, of Cats and dogs are now in the reality TV show all the time and God help us all if we all do go back to normal work. Well, and I think this goes back to your question, Sarah, about when we go back to in person, one of the things I was sort of obsessed the entire time that we've been in the pandemic with what is not different, because everybody is always talking about how is virtual space different and what are we missing from doing it this way? And very early on, I was like, okay, here's what's not different. It's not different that I've said this already, but it's not different that we were able to predict what was coming next. We just thought we were. It is not different that we want to be connected to each other and it's hard and there are barriers to that. That's always been true. It's not different that people say we can't read body language, but of course we can read body language. I mean, even on the phone, Maggie, you're giving us all sorts of nonverbal you know, signals that are not the words in terms of whether you agree or disagree or how you're feeling, right? I, we coach a lot on the phone, right? It's not different that some people feel more comfortable and other people feel less comfortable. It's not different that some people are feel excluded or included. I mean, right? It's not different that we have to make deliberate choices about how we manage the space and, right? There's so many things that are not different. One of the things that felt more intimate to me about this space was that we are actually in each other's houses, right? We have our pets in the room with us. And so now if you're going back to your office, like, are we going to change back to like, there's work and there's life? Or are we going to take with us this realization that we are just one human being and be able to bring all of ourselves to work, which I hope was starting to be a trend anyway, that we could be our full authentic selves to whatever extent we wanted to be. I have very much enjoyed getting to know my coworkers' backgrounds, mm. non-virtual backgrounds. I liked seeing their lives going by in the background, pets, other family members, the, the walls behind them with pictures of their families on there. It's, it's funny to say it, but it made them seem more real, even though we were not in person together. And I do very much hope that we can hold on to that 
realization for each other. What do you think, Maggie? Yeah, so many things to say about this, because of course, me me having little sight, I kind of relate to people, I think very differently than if I were fully sighted, because I go by what I hear. And what in person, what I sense, because people overuse their vision, it dominates all Mm -hmm. our senses. And then the next thing is hearing, but hearing is the strongest thing. And it's the last one to go, they tell you to speak with people in deep comas and permanent vegetative states because hearing and music are the last things to go even when somebody is um deeply disabled with cognitive impairment um or gripped by something horrible like alzheimer's if they sang in life they will sing with perfect technique with all the words and then just shut down when the music's finished it's the most fascinating phenomenon to me to this day it always has been i don't know why but all my other senses are removed on Zoom, um, apart from hearing. And I wonder, I don't see me going back because of my health, my immune system's fairly shot. I don't see me going back to comedy clubs, to improv rehearsals. I think it will all be on Zoom. For, the, for, for me as an individual, everything will probably be, from my point of view, audio only. It doesn't mean trying to find other audio only classes because they ain't there. We are visual creatures and we like to be seen because we think it makes us validated and there's, there's a, that's a whole nother meeting to chat about that one. But for fully sighted, able-bodied people, um, going back in, I think it's going to be a case of how soon do they put up that form of barrier? Because you can't pretend you haven't heard something. You can't pretend you haven't seen something. <laughs> You've seen the child being dragged out the room by the nanny and the background of that politician's yeah. house, which is hilarious, you know. Um, ah. you, right? It's all the, the true colours are coming out kind of thing when people have this stress. And it's it's who will truly change, who will try and get back to what it was like beforehand, and will we do it selectively with certain people because the privacy shield had to, I'm going to call it privacy shield, it had to drop because we had to start helping each other. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got such a big attitude about that. For example, my end, I didn't get the food deliveries from the local council. I couldn't get a supermarket slot. I had my neighbours feeding me. <laughs> and that's what worked, grassroots, local stuff. And we need to be helping each other more, talking with each other more. I think a lot of us will... But probably did get that. More of us will get it. But the challenge is how soon will people try and revert to what it was like pre-plague? Um, I, I think a lot of things have changed and needed to change. Some of the change has been very difficult and, and super challenging. Uh, but some of the change is great. I know the names of all my neighbours now and it doesn't sound like much, but it's in southeast England, <laughs> in Surrey, <laughs> that's a big thing. <laughs> yeah. So let's, you know, we'll see, we'll see. Maggie, I would love to know what it's like to improvise audio only. I, I would like to know what are you hearing because I am one that is totally dependent on sight. So, I, what is yeah. your what is your experience of improv like? Um, it's kind of like my normal life. Um, you're um, looking at that question from a, being a fully sighted, I'm going to guess a healthy person that will go back to regular classes and the normal stuff. I'm not accusing you of being normal. Don't panic. 
I'm just saying <laughs> your normal improv in the normal way. Um, so if a sighted person and a fully able-bodied person can consider this my position, it's like, oh, how weird, oh my God, oh my God. For me, it's kind of normal because I normally go by hearing and chemistry. It's the prickles on the back of your neck in there. Oh, that's why we know we like somebody, that kind of thing. And also, it's radio. <laughs> People have forgotten that radio existed before Zoom. Talking books. Um, these things are all really valid art forms, and they're being swept aside um, and kind of disregarded because we're vain, we love ourselves, we like compliments about our appearance. So much of society is, oh, my God, the nonsense programs on TV. I don't care if I get sued for this, but is it Love Island? What? What is that? Somebody has a new backside. Oh, God. Well, I don't get it. I don't get this superfluity of superficiality and our assumed obsession with it because it's not important. Anybody listening that kind of thinks a little bit like me, I give you full permission from today to say appearance is not important. It's what's inside that counts. So for me, perhaps synchronicity or luck or God knows what, me just trying to find a way forward, me escaping into my head when I was little with not very much around me. You know, we built a fairy castle from empty boxes of puzzle and toilet rolls and that kind of thing. And that was the fairy castle where we had huge fights. But we used our imagination. So for me, audio only, your imagination fires up. Audio only is hard, okay? <laughs> um, audio only is even harder when you're the only audio person in the group yeah. because of all the other cues but there are ways around it and when it comes to improv studying improv performing I've only got one mantra I don't tend to have a lot of rules my one rule in improv after 11 years is go where you are welcomed do not stay where you are tolerated mm -hmm. I imagine that it's so important Mm -hmm. I, I heard that but I didn't know what it meant until you realise oh my god they're just putting up with me because it looks good to have a disabled person oh. in the team <laughs> and the people that welcome you they will do and it's small tweaks um, they'll do what's needed to stop making you feel like a disabled person or a token blind or whatever the, 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 the kind of throwaway horrible phrase is for example, a recent show with uh, Vinnie and Katie from Improv College. I mean, I was blessed. We had Meg Fitzgerald. We had Ken Hall. We had Dave Morris. Oh, my goodness. And all they did, it, it's a backdrop show. It's all about the weird backdrops the performers have. I was there as a voice. And they just said, edit. And they named the scene. So I'm on immediately in two seconds. I'm on the same playing field as everybody else. Yeah. And the change is tiny, but you have to want to include people. And to get into a position where you want to include people, that's the big thing for people. Maggie, I want, I want to understand that what you just said better. How in the group that you were just talking about, you were doing a show. How was it that they leveled the playing field? It was a, a show that's called The Backdrop. So a large part of the show is the... Um, they tell the performers, the invited guests for that night's performance, bring the weirdest backdrop you've ever seen somebody use on Zoom or that you've ever used. So you have things like the savannah with the giraffe hiding behind the tree. You have 
um, a nightclub with a toilet in the middle of it, just that weird backstop things. And because I have no visual presence at all on Zoom, I don't use the app or the website, I just telephone in. They needed to make the edit between the scenes verbal. So before the show, Vin emailed me, my phone reads out my emails, and it said, we have five different backdrops. And he just audio describes in the email what the backdrops are. One was a savannah, one was a control room and a nuclear power station. So I knew the names of the different backdrops. I knew what the five backdrops were. And instead of the show being a seamless flow, somewhere between montage and sometimes narrative, but just a very, uh, an hour long, uh, long form with uh, four to six players. Whenever the scene changed, somebody said, edit control room power station or edit the savannah it, they would let me know when the scene was changing and that's not normally done on zoom shows but it's a tiny thing to do but because i've always felt very welcomed by vinnie and katie at improv college and, and uh, the same with ken at synergy they made it easy for me and it's a tiny tweak but very few people would realize that that's all it takes to make somebody with no zoom vision feel at home and feel comfortable and that's what i meant um you're all starting from the same position um i i to, to be honest i've, I've kind of uh, i've always puzzled at why it's so difficult why some people find it very difficult to include an audio only person um i'm just nodding vigorously over here and uh, <laughs> especially when you said why is it so difficult i think there's so much about just not paying attention and not thinking of it that is the barrier, not mm -hmm. the problem solving itself. And that concludes part one of our interview. In part two, Kat, Maggie, and I dive deeper into the importance of inclusion as we all navigate the return to life in person. And then Kat and Maggie do an amazing improv scene together, audio only. Speaking of which, Maggie inspired Ken to create an audio-only improv class for Synergy Theatre. You can find it when you go to SynergyTheatre.com and click on School of Improv. All right, until next time, which I intend to not take too long. And that's our show. If you think improv sounds like fun, it is. If you think you'd like to try improv, it's easy. Just go to SynergyTheatre.com and click on School of Improv. Synergy Theatre offers beginner, advanced, and master classes. Synergy Theatre is also on Facebook. Please rate, review, and follow this podcast. Your support makes a difference. Synergy Theatre is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit that depends on the participation of current and future star supporters and improvisers like you. Thank you.